morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. We'll parse through MSNBC's spat with Elon Musk and Frida Parsi will discuss U.S. policy goals to weaken Russia and the implications of that. But let's first get to the news that is blocking out the sun. Protests broke out last night at the Supreme Court after a leaked draft opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito to overturn Roe v. Wade was published by Politico. Alito writes in the draft opinion, quote, We hope that Roe and Casey be overruled. It is time to heed the Constitution and return to the issue, return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Casey refers to the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that largely maintained the protections of abortion rights put in place by Roe. The SCOTUS blog confirmed on Twitter that the leaked document is almost certainly an authentic draft, and while Alito believes at least five members of the court have voted to support overruling Roe, does not reflect the comments or reactions of other justices. The draft shows that the court is looking to reject Roe's logic and legal protections, which is now based on the right to privacy, but Alito's opinion argues the Constitution does not actually protect privacy. The court's holding will not be final until it is published, most likely in the next couple of months. Dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, joins us to discuss. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, this is a, I think, seems like a novel situation to many people. I understand it's, it's happened in the past, the leaking of a draft, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. So this is this is not set in stone, and this is just you know one justice's opinion, but it implies that he had he had broader support. Is there a history of this kind of thing happening? No, this is unprecedented. The Supreme Court prides itself on its secrecy. Occasionally, after a decision comes out, we learn of the internal deliberations that led to it. But if an entire draft published in advance. That, to my knowledge, has never happened before. So, substantively, what's at issue here? Obviously, the right to privacy has been the basis for other kinds of protections. What does it mean beyond the scope of even abortion if the court decides that there is, in fact, no right to privacy in the Constitution? It's a great point. The Supreme Court has safeguarded many liberties under the right to privacy, the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right of competent adults to refuse even life-saving medical treatment, the right of consenting adults to engage in same-sex sexual activity. If you follow the reasoning from Justice Alito's draft opinion, then none of these rights would be protected by the Constitution. It seems hard to believe the court could pull this thread without unraveling the whole fabric of constitutional protection of privacy. Founder of the Civil Rights Corps said that this draft could create a scenario in which Republicans could pay, pass a nationwide ban on abortion in 2024, as well as make contraceptives and the like illegal if the issue is kicked to Congress. Now, my understanding is this will, you know, the, the first thing this will do is really turn the issue back to to the states. And then I, my understanding is that there's a number of states that already have uh, something in place that the second Roe v. Wade is overturned, those states will prohibit uh, abortion. And, and I guess that would be the, the fear that they could uh, theoretically uh, go further. So that, that's right. That's what would happen at, at the state level rather than at the, you know, the, the level of the entire nation. You're absolutely right. What this decision, if it comes down, would say is that the issue of abortion is left to the political process. Initially, that will mean that it's up to each state. There are states that already have laws on the books that prohibit all or almost all abortion. 
And there's states that have laws on the books that say if Roe was ever ruled, overruled, then abortion will become illegal. I'd estimate that over half the states will prohibit all or almost all abortions. But other states like California and New York and Connecticut will continue to allow abortions. But I predict in states that prohibit abortion, they'll quickly adopt laws trying to make it a crime for a woman to leave the state for an abortion. They'll try to prohibit methods of contraception, like the IUD or the morning after pill, that act after conception. But something else you said at the beginning is also right. Congress could try to pass a law with a Democratic Congress to create a national right to abortion or the Republican Congress to prohibit all abortions. And then the question will be, would the Democrats or the Republicans be willing to change the filibuster rules to adopt such a bill? Yeah, it, it seems like you. Then that's a, like a, uh, an escalating or snowballing, really bitter national political dispute. I mean, then you could theoretically bring in, well, the party in charge could expand the Supreme Court, and then the party that takes over could impeach all those justices, or or just further expand the Supreme Court. Well, it's, it's end up with a Supreme Court, and we could end up with a Supreme Court with as many members as the House. <laughs> Well, look, it, it's certainly not unprecedented, as you know, I'm sure the dean can attest to, the idea that at least the threat of expanding the court has been used to curb whether or not whatever your political orientation is, curb what the administration, the ongoing administration feels like is an overreach. And there's even a bigger conversation happening right now as to whether or not we should have judicial review at all and whether judicial review is really in the Constitution as, as a principle. What do you make of that, Dean? Well, let me say first, I think it's so important to emphasize what you've just said overruling Roe if it happens is going to intensify the political fight over abortion. It's going to be a huge issue in Congress and therefore every congressional race. It's going to be an issue at the state level for every state legislature, state judicial races, even city council races. Now, in terms of expanding the size of the Supreme Court, that's going to turn again on the filibuster. So long as there's the filibuster in the Senate, no bill to expand the size of the Supreme Court will ever be adopted. In terms of the debate over judicial review, this will intensify the debate. Opinion polls show that over two-thirds of Americans don't want Roe overruled, and yet it appears that's exactly what the Supreme Court is poised to do. Do you think the leaking of uh, Justice Alito's draft, I mean, it's speculation, but in it, is, it that, is it an attempt to change what the outcome is going to be to spook so, you know, like a Kavanaugh or something from theoretically supporting this to maybe being against it because of blowback, something like that. I know it's just speculation. I have no idea. <laughs> Did it come from a liberal clerk or justice or a conservative clerk or justice or someone else in the court who got a copy? I wonder if we'll ever know who leaked it or why. Hmm. Well, according to CNN, Justice Roberts, does not, uh, Justice Roberts does not want to actually completely overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade, meaning he would dissent from Alito's draft opinion and mostly, most likely side with the court's three liberal justices. However, Roberts is willing to hold up, uh, uphold banning abortion at 15 weeks. Recent CNN polling shows most Americans oppose SCOTUS overturning Roe v. Wade. 30 percent say they would like to see it overturned, while 69 percent oppose. And when the survey was done three times last fall, the support for overturning stood between 20 and 31 percent. Democrats have come out against the bill with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying if Politico's report is correct, the Supreme Court poised to inflict the greatest restriction of rights in the past 50 years, not just on women, but on all Americans. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted that Congress must pass legislation that codifies Roe v. Wade as the law of the land in this country. Now, if there aren't 60 votes in the Senate to do it, must end the filibuster, uh, as you said. 
uh, Dean. You know, I, I'm curious about you know what what John Roberts is expected to do. He, he's you know carving a, a kind of more narrow ground. Just him that, that he would. Uh, can you talk about you know the difference in in what what he, what's expected from that he thinks about this? This is what he suggested at oral argument to uphold the Mississippi law to allow states to ban abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy, but then to leave for the future laws that prohibit abortion even earlier in pregnancy, like at six weeks or the moment moment of conception. But remember, Roberts isn't needed by the conservative just to create a majority. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett are sufficient to overrule Roe versus Wade. And the Alito opinion suggests that's exactly what they're about to do. Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, when celebrities, top political leaders, and media elites gathered on Saturday night for the first White House Correspondents' Dinner in three years, Anthony Fauci was not among them. The government's top COVID-19 advisor had opted not to attend, citing, quote, my individual assessment of my personal risk of contracting the disease. While Fauci Fauci did not attend the dinner itself, he was photographed at a pre-party, an indoor and outdoor Saturday brunch. Now, Fauci is certainly free to make whatever decision he thinks is best for him in the post-vaccination landscape as COVID-19 becomes a milder and milder illness for the overwhelming majority of healthy vaccinated people who catch it. Risk assessment absolutely rests with the individual. Much of the public frustration with Dr. Fauci and government health officials like him is that for far too long, they insisted risk assessment be calculated by federal health bureaucrats for the collective rather than the individual. Disastrously, these bureaucrats were often far less willing than the general public to countenance any risk whatsoever. They also evinced misplaced priorities. Mask requirements for school children remained in place even as governments relaxed most other restrictions, despite COVID-19 posing less risk to kids and teenagers than any other cohort. Now, the U.S. is swiftly, thank God, moving away from this norm, the norm of needing permission from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and letting people work out for themselves how they feel about the risk of catching COVID-19 as if it were any other illness. That's a relief. And any effort to go back to the old norm should be met with maximal resistance. All that said, Fauci's personal risk assessment is not beyond criticism, given that he clearly sees himself as a model of good public health behavior and has remained a steadfast scold about holiday parties and other events. So skipping the White House Correspondents' Dinner is well in keeping with his stated coronavirus caution. But was the brunch all that much safer? Now, the brunch was partly outdoors, fine. There were indoor components as well, as far as I could tell. Moreover, most attendants were in close proximity and unmasked, Fauci included. A lot of drinking and talking and laughing and making merry, the kinds of things that actually do spread COVID. Now, Fauci also attended the annual Gridiron Dinner less than a month ago, which did turn out to be a super spreader event though Fauci evidently uh, avoided the virus. Now, Fauci is all over the place, both literally attending parties and figuratively in terms of his basic stance on whether the pandemic is over. Rising Friday's co-hosts Emily Jashinsky and Ryan Grimm highlighted this confusion last week. 
Now, Dr. Fauci walked back comments that he made where he said the U.S. is no longer in the pandemic phase. He told NPR, quote, I want to clarify one thing. I probably should have said the acute component of the pandemic phase, and I understand how that can lead to some misinterpretation. I was talking about the acute, the acute fomenting phase, and everyone agrees we're not there. We're not getting 900,000 new infections a day. And he goes on to say, is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. So just to refresh your memory, here's Fauci's earlier statement about the pandemic being over. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. What we hope to do, I don't believe, and I've, and I've spoken about this widely, we're not going to eradicate this virus. If we can keep that level very low and intermittently vaccinate people, and I don't know how often that would have to be, Judy, that might be every year, that might be longer, in order to keep that level low. But right now, we are not in the pandemic phase in this country. Again, I don't care if Fauci follows inconsistent or unclear standards. A lot of people have followed inconsistent or unclear personal standards throughout the pandemic. But let's keep in mind that he was the paramount standard setter for all Americans, mandatory, from March 2019 until just a few weeks ago. One should be forgiven, for subjecting his assessment to greater scrutiny. If you're hobnobbing with a large number of social people, you run some risk of catching COVID. That's as true for brunch as it is for dinner. So I just don't know what to do with this guy. Like, says, no, it's, it says the pandemic's over, then says, well, it didn't quite mean that it's over. Goes to the gridiron dinner, which is a super spreader event. Says he's not gonna go to the White House correspondence dinner because it's too risky, but goes to the brunch with a bunch of people before. Like, none of that makes any sense. Which, again, I don't care what he does. But he's the guy who is determining what, it, what everyone is allowed to do or whose recommendations for what you should be allowed to do were taken as gospel by government policymakers at every level, state, local, and national. And, and, and he's no better at, at picking this stuff than anybody else or doesn't make any more sense than anybody else, which really undermines, if I had any confidence left in government health officials, it would certainly be further undermined, but I don't, so I guess it's just... Still at zero. Yeah, it's what the kids, I believe, call a weird flex to make <laughs> so much of not going to the dinner. You know, it does feel like whether or not he was doing it, that the, you know, the liberal media broadly was was trying to make some kind of case for, you know, Fauci, Fauci's so safe, Fauci's not going to this dinner, which is a little inconvenient, mind you, for everyone else at the dinner, right? Like, the implications like of Biden. holding him up, right, as an exemplar of safety really throws everybody else, including the president of the United States, under the bus. But that all seems to be wasted with him showing up with all of these pictures with his arm around Don Lemon and everybody else at this brunch, which is an indoor and outdoor event. You can make a case for, well, everyone had to get PCR tests going into these events, and so it was generally safe. But that doesn't distinguish with the difference between the brunch <laughs> right. and the dinner, which a lot was made of that he wasn't going to attend. You know, what's the difference there? Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I actually think there's a little bit of a difference between the brunch and the dinner. I mean, I do think that being outdoors is safer than being indoors. And if the brunch is kind of indoor-outdoor and they've got the indoors, you know, the doors wide open and fresh air coming in and there's a lot of ventilation, there might make some difference there. So I can understand a person assessing the situation and their personal risk and saying, okay, I'll go to an outdoor brunch and kind of remain mostly outdoors versus going into an indoor dinner where the doors are closed and there's not much ventilation. I can understand that and that's fine. I'm with you, Robbie, on this where, you know, at this point it should be, and it should have been for me all along, uh, individual assessment, individual risk, assess it, figure out what where you're at 
and then make decisions based on that from what we know about this virus. We know that it is largely for the vast majority of young people not harmful. That is what we've known and even thought was amazing in the beginning of the pandemic, thinking, wow, thank goodness the children are being spared by this. But for whatever reason, it, you know, that those knowns, those scientific knowns are have not mattered. And even today, still children are being masked in schools. I was even just in Texas this last weekend, surprising that to find out that kids in Texas are still wearing masks. I thought for sure, okay, maybe here in California, I can understand, you know, California, but Texas. So one thing that I really would like to see going forward with Fauci is more consistency in guiding the local health officials. So you've got Fauci now saying pandemic over, not over, kind of over, think so it's over. I'm going to assess my personal risk. But then on the local level, that message doesn't seem to be going down the pipeline. And you've got all these local officials still regulating and mandating a variety of things for people. And I thought, you know, especially for the Democratic Party that's saying we're the party of science, uh, we're following the lead, we're following Fauci. Why are they not then following Fauci at this point? And why why is Fauci not being more aggressive about I'm the leader here? You know, he's the one who says he's science. Right. <laughs> and that he's you know, he's the end all be all. So if that's the case, you know, and he can he doesn't even have to uh, abide by the courts. Um, if that's the case, why is he not giving more directives to the local authorities and saying, at this point, we should be assessing personal individual risk. We know that the levels are as low as they've ever been children are not at risk, like maybe it's time to actually start exiting the pandemic. And I don't see when it's going to end, though, because he's not saying any of this. Right. And what happens when, let's say the White House Correspondents' Dinner and turns out to have been some kind of super spreader event, could be the case, uh, that cases rise a little bit in D.C. as a direct result of that. In the overwhelming likelihood is that deaths and hospitalizations, even if cases rise, deaths and hospitalizations probably won't. They really haven't in D.C. if you look at the numbers for the last, you know, 10 months or so. Uh, but cases might rise a little bit. And then will the policymakers in D.C., will Mariel Bowser look at her social calendar, say, oh, yeah, I don't have anything this weekend so we can bring back the mask mandate, as she has essentially done in the past. So then it will be the case that these partying celebrities, media figures and government officials, they are happy. They can party when it's convenient for them. They can socialize when it's convenient for them. And then still they, they feel they want to defend the right to inflict mass mandates, other yeah. restrictions on people whenever they feel like it. So it's just so the yeah. people are powerless because they're at the mercy of these officials who will do whatever they want when they feel like doing it and then say, OK, now we're back to we're telling you what to do again. Yeah, I think the people yeah. who've pointed out that there were all of these covid measures that attendees had to you know, take into account testing and, and the like. But the same wasn't true for the people who were working the event, who, of course, remained masked. Is, is a really perfect mm -hmm. example of the inconsistency in the way that these kind of policies are applied and who actually has to be subjected to them. And in the pictures of uh, Fauci at the brunch event, he seems to be very clearly inside and no one around him seems to be masked. I saw some of the pictures from the event itself that evening. And some people did obviously make the choice to remain masked through most, if not all, of the evening. And so you're seeing people manage their personal choices differently, which is fair enough. But there's one group of people who's able to do that, the attendees of the event, and another group yeah. of people who absolutely is not the people who are actually working. That's a good point. Events. I'm so sick of seeing yeah. mass service people. I mean, I mean, if they want to wear masks, that's fine. But it, it, right. I feel like we're starting to create this underclass or this secondary class of, of, of people who can't even be seen or be viewed that is very 
There's something about it that's disturbing to me, and I think it disturbs a lot of people. Uh, but anyway, Dr. Trita Parsi will join us next to discuss the pivot in U.S. strategy in the war on Ukraine. Stick with us for that. Yesterday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki pushed back against claims that the U.S. is engaging in a proxy war with Russia. Let's watch. The Washington Post polls found that 8 in 10 Americans are expressing worries about a wider war and the possible use of nuclear weapons by Russia. And given that Russia has made it clear that they believe NATO has, uh, has engaged in a proxy war, what's the White House's message to worried Americans right now? Well, I think it's an important step to take and a responsibility of everyone to make clear this is not a proxy war. Um, I know that is the Republican, I mean, the, Repu the Russian talking point um, on this, but it is not a proxy war. Uh, this is a war between Russia and Ukraine. NATO is not involved. Uh, the United States is not fighting this war. So I think it's important and vital for all of us to not repeat the Kremlin talking points on this front. A little Freudian slip there in her thinking, Russian and Republican. Despite the Biden administration's denials, however, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's claims that the U.S. intends to weaken Russia through its support of Ukraine have led foreign policy analysts to identify a, quote, policy shift in the Biden administration. Executive Director of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Trita Parsi, tweeted, quote, As the war continues, the goalposts change and objectives that earlier were flat-out rejected suddenly become no-brainers. Policy is driven by tactical reactions to events, not strategy, and objectives are changed on the go without much deliberation. What could go wrong? Well, now Dr. Parsi joins us to expand. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you here. So uh, you. do you... So you, you do think that this was maybe sort of a shift that maybe it didn't begin with this whole idea of being in a proxy war with Russia, but now it is absolutely potentially one. I mean, what, what is your take on where we were and where we are now? Look, there's going to be a long debate as to whether this was originally the intention or not. I, I think we can set that aside for now. I think what's most worrisome is that it's very clear now that we have expansive objectives uh, when it comes to this engagement. And those expansive engagements seems to be driven, as I wrote in that tweet, by tactical considerations rather than strategic. Let me, let me give you this example. Imagine if in 2001, the objective had remained in Afghanistan to just take out Al-Qaeda, uh, decimate it, and make sure that he couldn't launch those terrorist attacks against the United States or anywhere else again. Would we have stayed that long? Instead, we expanded the objectives on the go to saying, now we're going to democratize Afghanistan. And we ended up staying for 20 years and we failed. That's the danger of having expansive objectives that are driven uh, mainly by tactical events, uh, perhaps a bit of hubris because things are going well, and they oftentimes come back to bite us. Uh, and that's what I fear in this situation. I think it's one thing to say that we should be defending Ukraine. But when we change the objective to saying that it's actually weakening Russia, that is a fundamentally different objective with a completely different timeline and completely different implications. Yeah, what does that even look like or mean, given that there is no kind of uh, qualitative endpoint on weakening Russia? Does, do you weaken it a little bit? Do you weaken it a lot? What is the metric by which you would assess how weak it needs to be? How is this not just an imperial project at this point? And how can someone like Jen Psaki, you know, straight face look, look at the camera when statements of this have been made 
by Lloyd Austin and claim that this is not, in fact, a proxy war. So I, I think you put your finger on it when it comes to the impreciseness of this objective. Um, if it would have been, for instance, to make sure that Russia uh, is pushed out of uh, uh, parts of Ukraine uh, and we go back to the way it was in December 2021, that would have been a clear objective. It would be qualitatively rather precise, as you put it. We would know when that is achieved. When we say weakening, and then we add to it to make sure that Russia cannot invade other countries again in the future. That is a very different proposition because Russia is actually bordering a lot of small countries. Are we saying that we are going to weaken Russia to the point in which this country with 6,000 nuclear weapons cannot invade any of those countries because it lacks the capacity? There's a different word for that. It's actually not even proxy war, it's war. Mm. Now, I think it's actually a good objective to be able to say we don't want Russia or any other country to be able to invade other countries. But there's two paths to that end goal. One is to say we're going to create deterrence, we're going to create uh, uh, arms control agreements, we're going to create diplomatic win-win solutions that not only takes away their ability to do so, but primarily takes away their desire to do so. Or we can say we're going to limit their resources, which means that we're going to cut them down in pieces. And that is war. And that is tremendously dangerous with a country that has 6,000 nuclear weapons. Right. It's a, it's a subtle difference in some ways, but it, it is a difference between saying, look, if as a result of, of, of Putin's decision to invade his neighbor and, and start this really horrific war, if as a result of that, the, you know, the Putin regime comes out weakened, I will not, I wouldn't shed very many tears about that, right? That's, that would be a fine effect. But, but if that is the goal of what we're doing, then there, it could theoretically be that we prioritize you know, imp, uh, having that outcome over even the, the safety and the, the lives of the Ukrainians. If we're, if we're pushing them to hold on because we want to inflict more pain on on the regime again a, a regime that i think de deserves pain it, it's not it's not that exactly. like that's the bad part the bad part is you know who suffers in the meantime mm -hmm. absolutely you put it quite well because the weakening of russia as a side effect of pushing them out of their illegal invasion of ukraine um, is a completely different thing. It's a side effect of the objective of defending Ukraine and making sure that Ukraine's uh, territorial integrity is not violated. But when you switch it around and you say that the objective is the weakening of Russia, then Ukraine becomes secondary, but also everything else becomes secondary. And it's no end goal. And this is how, in the heat of the moment, in the hubris of success, uh, we end up expanding our objectives and then we end up in an endless confrontation. And then afterwards, we ask ourselves, how could we be have, have been so unwise to go along with this? Well, we're in that moment right now. We've been in these moments several times before. Many of them have read about it in the history books. We're in, in the middle of one right now. And it's now we need to be as uh, uh, collected and as thoughtful as possible and not allow uh, these type of expansive objectives or the expansion of our objectives, these endless expansions to take place because it will cost us dearly. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and, and also the, the, you know, the longer we are engaged in this process, you know, even if the chance of a nuclear escalation is, is very small, I, I think it is extremely small, it's never, never happened before, 
the longer we are engaged in this type of thing, even a small chance, you know, we, okay, we're rolling a dice. It's a you know one in a million chance. Well, we're going to do it. We're going to do it again tomorrow. We're going to do it again tomorrow. We're going to do it again tomorrow. So even even something with a small chance, the longer we stay this course, the more there and and. And that's true for Russia, too. Again, we wish they wouldn't do what they're doing is horrible. They shouldn't do it for this reason, as well as many others. But that doesn't change the reality that what we're doing is also on us. And we can only affect what we're doing, right? The fact that Putin and Russia is clearly the aggressor in this case does not mean that our own actions are inconsequential. We are still a superpower. What we do does matter. And what we do then as a result, we have to think through very carefully. What we say, we have to think through very carefully. And we have to be very well aware of the risks and the dangers of uncontrollable escalation, particularly when we're dealing with a country that also has 6,000 nuclear weapons. Well, Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan had this to say about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Let's listen. I mean, it's easy in American discourse to talk simplistically about the far left and the far right as two equally dangerous fringe blocks. Elon Musk has done it plenty of times just in the past week. But here's the difference. America's far left wants to give us free health care and free childcare. America's far right wants to give us white supremacy and no democracy. And this asymmetrical polarization of U.S. politics would be laughable if it weren't so horrifying. We are living through an unspeakably dangerous moment. The pro-QAnon, pro-neo-Nazi faction of the Republican Party is poised to expand dramatically come the midterms. We're just two years away from Donald Trump very possibly re-seizing executive power. If that happens, we may look back on this past week as a pivotal moment when a petulant and not-so-bright billionaire casually bought one of the world's most influential messaging machines and just handed it to the far right. Musk responded back, quote, same org that covered up Hunter Biden laptop story, had Harvey Weinstein's story early and killed it, and built Matt Lauer his rape office. Lovely people. Lovely people indeed. Here to weigh in on liberal media's continuing outrage over Musk's Twitter acquisition is associate editor at Reason, my colleague Liz Wolf. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. And I know, you know, you, like like me, have been observing this kind of absolute freak-out, meltdown mentality among many in, in the kind of mainstream and progressive media, Mehdi Hassan absolutely being one of them who's just, you know, losing his mind uh, over this. And, and I thought that commentary was really, uh, was really reflective of that. What did, what did you make of it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, Elon Musk is not... A, a neo-Nazi or uh, somebody who's going to uh, allow QAnon supporters to have this wild free reign. I think he's really overstating the case. Elon Musk might be the single uh, person in America who is doing the most to transition us away from really harmful fuel reliance, uh, bringing our, our, he should be somebody who should be heralded as a savior by anybody who is climate change concerned, um, you know, on his work with Tesla alone. But also in terms of political affiliations, I think it's important that we not overstate the case. Musk is not some wild far right extremist. Musk is a centrist who I think feels somewhat abandoned by his own party. I mean, he was an Obama voter. I think he feels as though the party moved and left him behind, something many people have reacted to. Well, to that point, in response to being called far right, Musk tweeted out this meme depicting Musk as being on the same political spectrum over the years, 
while the left keeps moving farther left. This sparked a very online debate on what is called asymmetric polarization, that one political party is getting more partisan than the other, or that one side is moving closer to its ideological pole than the other. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious about this in part because it does seem as though talking about some of the neo-Nazi things and uh, these uh, kind of more radical extreme things does miss the point that there are some basic ways in which the conservative party has not stuck to its own ideals, has moved right on economic issues, not supporting basic minimum wage raises that keep up with inflation, the gap between the very rich and the very poor uh, growing enormously over the last 50 years since the time when a lot of conservatives say that was the ideal time in American history, the gap between average CEO pay and average worker pay going from one to, uh, to 30 to one to 300. I mean, is he missing the forest? I think the right has moved, uh, if anything, has moved left or not moved very much on economic issues. It, it compared to 10 years ago, think of like Tea Party type people. So where's the conversation on the, the $15 minimum wage? Why is it that well, all never the- never supported that. Well, that's the, that's the entire point, that there is not even the, neither party is making even the most superficial of gestures to actually meet the needs of labor. I, my sense is on, on policy, I, the meme is definitely incomplete. On policy, the Democratic Party, I think, has moved further to the left than the Republican Party has moved to the right on raw policy. With like a couple issues, immigration, they've certainly gotten more hard right on. Other things, uh, they've, they've not. Now that, But that misses the way in which the Republican Party has become kind of weird, for lack of a better word, over more. the last few years. Same more thing. <laughs> what, what do you think about it, Liz? Well, in terms of abandoning labor, I think that's a really good point. And I think like people like David Shore, a Democratic Party analyst who uh, has become very widely reviled by a bunch of wokesters on the left. David Shore has been making this point about how the Democratic Party is now interestingly bifurcated. It used to be both the party of labor representing the needs of the working class and this party that's this bastion of highly educated, um, you know, people who went to Ivy Leagues who live in big cities like New York and D.C., now it's sort of increasingly and bizarrely the highly educated coastal elite people uh, with some of those working class people who would typically be represented by labor actually sort of shifting more toward identifying as independents, maybe not even identifying as Republicans per se, but not really feeling at home in the Democratic Party. And I think we see this a little bit with recent polling data that emerged about Latino voters and how they're some of the people who most disapprove of Biden's job performance so far out of all demographic groups. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's always, it strikes me as a little fault of, he, what, what Mehdi Hassan said, right, compared to, you know, the far right is they want to Nazism, the far left wants to give you free health care. Well, so the right would say, if we're comparing apples to apples, we're talking about, right, the people on the far left who want to, who are like burning down buildings and looting stores and smashing windows. And like, that is the comparison to That's the people who storm the Capitol. That's not a political orientation. Well, no. but neither is. Neither is what? Antifa and Nazism are, it, it, Sure, but to we the also, extent that they're violent you know, uprisings or, within the U.S. It's, it's Proud there, Boys there, versus there, Antifa. There right, have been a elected. You'd be hard pressed to find a Democrat right. who has said anything positive about any of the property destruction that happened in the course of 2020. In fact, Joe right, Biden they just say ran. It happening. They just say jo nothing to see jo here. Joe Biden ran, arguing against Absolutely. all of that, sure. saying he wanted sure. to fund the police. Eric Adams, new mayor of sure. New York, says he wants to fund the police. Democrats have been lockstep and tough on crime stuff with Republicans. In fact, trying to out message them right. on all of that stuff. On the other hand, you.
you couldn't, you, it was difficult to find a Republican who would condemn the 1-6 attacks, despite that not having to be something that was so closely associated with the, the institution of the Republican Party. They chose to kind of get in bed with that and a lot of the other kind of cultural Trump era phenomenon that ended up happening. Yeah, Which that's is, the weirdness I, I mentioned. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's weirdness. I feel like none of us would really go to bat to defend uh, the one six sort of apologist because all of that was absolutely astonishingly unprecedentedly insane but yeah. i do think maybe the best example of sort of like extremist and relatively mainstream ideology on the left is like um stuff related to i, th I think republicans are obviously not covering themselves in glory when it comes to critical race theory and trans issues in schools but like on we had the whole pronouns right. controversy this weekend where new york times was publishing that review of the book gender queer and apparently uh, decided to stay away from using this author's preferred pronouns and then came under fire from a lot of people for not using the pronouns of a mm -hmm. and ear and all these things. And I think maybe that's something that centrists like Musk are like, I don't understand what this is. And I'm afraid that if I screw up something as simple and sort of nonsensical right. as using the pronoun air, I don't know how to pronounce it, E-I-R. Well, <laughs> and, and I take the point, I know what you're going to say, what, Brianna. What, what not, am I going to say, Rodney? You're going to say that's not, that's not democratic. That's not the left, no. and that's not politics. It's, it's educators and activists <laughs> and liberals who, right, who are, are using a, that identity politics media, as a substitute right. for substantive politics. And if we're talking it's about left-right right spectrum. And it irritates people like Elon Musk, and, it right. talks, and those and, people need to cool it. Because they're ruining it for the whole Democratic Party. Because they are being, they're being, made to be thought that they are the Democratic Party. But there's also right? something interesting that's happening here, which is like these things are much easier to talk about than actual issues of a, like class and disparity. Exactly. And so this is something that like, you know, in on TV segments or on Twitter, this is something where so much of the conversation focuses on it and perhaps it gets uh, disproportionate airtime. But I mean, I at least for one, like I pay a lot of attention to the reporting of people like Katie Herzog and Jesse Single, mm -hmm. who are focusing not just on the sensationalist uh, internet, like Twitter disputes over these things, but the specific ways where some of these like far left um, radicals are actually creeping into institutions like academia and medicine. And so that's sort of where I wish that conversation would go. And I think it's very fair to criticize like, okay, well, lots of actual people who are concerned with class and labor issues on the left are not the people who really give a damn about this. Yeah, Liz, so I will agree with, I agree with that. And I think that's why Mehdi has half a point. I think he rightly identifies when he describes the left, a focus on those kinds of substantive economic issues or issues like Medicare for all, which are overwhelmingly popular, not just with Democrats, but with the Republicans and independents as well. The issue from my, from my end is that these identity issues are raised, I would argue disproportionately by people on the right, even if they are in the cultural you know, moment because of the left to, to distract from the fact that the right is not actually in place, that it has abandoned all of its class commitments to the extent that there's a faux populism going on and is hoping that nobody notices how much they've shifted because there's a conversation about the left's cultural right shift, uh, sorry, cultural left shift instead. I think that's a fair argument, but then that definitely raises the question of if the right has abandoned any commitments to fighting for the working class, why do we see people behaving the way they do, right? Why would Latino voters be so disapproving of Joe Biden? Or why would we see in lots of sort of interesting swing counties that are highly composed of, of you know, tough on crime white people and some tough on crime Latinos, but like along the border, you know, very, very poor people, we see them going for for Republicans increasingly. Like well, you I know who I'm else sort of, they went for, Liz? 
Those Latina voters also went for Bernie Sanders. And where, where does he fall on that left-right spectrum, according to Mehdi Hassan's uh, little diatribe there? Yeah. Well, fair enough. We, we can go head-to-head -head with the data. But I am curious about, like, if... I mean, I'm I'm not interested in I'm not a fan of the sort of increasingly populist right that uh, you know for many reasons. But I I am interested in like if if the if labor if the working class is so abandoned by them, why are they acting the way that they are yeah. in terms of endorsing them and in terms of shifting away from the Democratic Party? Like to me, that's sort of the unanswered question that really you could spend hours and hours and hours attempting to theorize on. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Next up, Tulsi Gabbard weighed in on President Biden's new misinformation governance board. So we'll discuss that. Former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard called out the Biden administration yesterday for its new disinformation governance board. Let's watch. It's all the Democrats out there who say over and over again about how you stand strong against dictatorships. I'm wondering where your voice is now condemning this creation of a ministry of truth in our own Department of Homeland Security. Even worse, the Republicans who are out there saying, hey, we need this propaganda board as long as it's not headed by somebody who's biased, as long as it's not Jankowitz. All of you need to read the Bill of Rights again and be reminded about what our freedom of speech really means and how important it is to us all. Backlash toward the White House's newly appointed, quote, disinformation czar, Nina Yankowicz, continues to grow as critics uncover her past endorsement of Russiagate conspiracy theories, including those of the now-debunked Steele dossier. Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, tweeted, quote, what an effing joke that this person is now running a so-called anti-disinformation board inside the Department of Homeland Security. I love how Glenn, you know, holds back so much. Uh, it's not just her. The ones who created this and are supporting of it are also aggressive disinformation agents. Uh, and yeah, I, so yeah. I, you know, I talked about this on my radar and I just thought it was kind of hilarious for uh, uh, Mayorkas, you know, comes out and says, oh, no, no, don't be worried about it. Sorry if we miscommunicated and made it seem like threatening. We, you know, we screwed that up. <laughs> so the, the, the first thing the disinformation board has done is cause bad information to exist, according to them, <laughs> right, about what its scope uh, and, and purpose is. And then I was arguing with some people about this on Twitter, or rather I was watching them argue with me and not participating, saying, like, no, this is, like, totally right-wing you know, making something out of out of nothing and which which makes no sense. And then was because they were trying to say to me, because this is good misinformation to purge misinformation about about uh, about Russia, Hunter Biden and the lab leak, because those were things I mentioned as examples of, of misinformation. Like, yeah, I, I am worried the board would get those things wrong because they have in the past. So, yeah, anyway, well, let me let me if I can just, you know, devil's advocate this for a second. Please do. Even if we kind of all agree that uh, Yankowicz ain't it, you know, she has, <laughs> does not have the credibility here to be in this position. She's gotten so many of these things wrong in the very recent past. Do we agree with Tulsi's framing that any effort for of the government to promulgate some type of information or correct information that's out there is infringing on the First Amendment. I can think of some historical examples of you know, the U.S. promulgating information about how to help a war effort or grow victory gardens or um, let's say the food pyramid, which is not the best example because it's kind of misinformation. Pyramid. 
Fuhrman is a classic example of misinformation. I, when we were young, they were like trying to cram bread carbs, down your carbs, throat. Carbs. We all know. Have you had your 11th serving of, of bread yet? Today? Why aren't you eating bread right now? Look, this is a, this is a gluten-free side of the death, so you, you'll take no argument from me. But you understand the general principle. Right. Do we think that there was no context in which the government shouldn't promulgate information, and that there isn't some utility for, for example, doing what this organization is supposed to do, which is address some of the misinformation that's been happening on WhatsApp chats that led so many Haitian immigrants to come to the border thinking that we had a broad amnesty program that would allow them access. I don't think there's anything wrong with the government wanting to put information out there. I mean, I'm a big uh, supporter of, sure, I think in every single newspaper and maybe every radio station and television station, there could be a moment, kind of like a public service announcement. We did this in radio. We we're on Sundays. We had to run a certain number of public service annou announcements you know, to, to be in compliance. And you could have that. And then it would say, this is brought to you by the United States government. And mm -hmm. this is what the government wants you to know. And you know where the message is coming from. So they say, hey, eat your bread uh, mm -hmm. every day, all day, eat bread nonstop. <laughs> you, you know it's coming from the government, right? And But the, the issue is when they start to go after other information and say, no, this is disinformation. This is misinformation. And this is the stuff we don't want you to see. This is bad. This is bad. That is where I think in their public messaging, they can say we disagree with some of the other things that are being said out there. We disagree that carbs are bad for you. And in fact, we think that they're necessary for building muscles and, you know, whatever, whatever <laughs> they want to say. I think that's totally fine for them to counter in an argument what they want people to hear and to even promote the messages that they want, like stop smoking or, you know, uh, reduce your risk of diabetes, you know, whatever, get your vaccine, whatever they want to say. I think it's totally fine for them to be able to say it as they should. They're the government. Right. But they it's when they're crossing this line and saying now we're going to go around labeling and mm -hmm. and even trying to halt information from you hearing other information out there because you might end up agreeing with it. And that's dangerous. And that is ultimately what this whole ministry of truth uh, which I found out is not part of Harry Potter. Yeah, <laughs> so I have to correct some misinformation here. Because Candace Owens tweeted, I have the tweet, she tweeted, Candace Owens, she tweeted, a literal, actual Ministry of Truth. We're now deep in the throes of a Harry Potter novel. The Ministry of Truth is from 1984. Harry Potter has a Ministry of Magic, which in the fifth book becomes very totalitarian and very cracking down on dissent. And the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, Dolores Umbridge, who's a Ministry of Magic official, acts in a way we are concerned this Nina Yankovich person will act. So I, I understand <laughs> how that came about, but this is basically like saying the Death Star is in Star Trek or something. We're getting things <laughs> slightly, okay, yeah. slightly, uh, this is, slightly. Well, this is why it's important but, to have such a chronological diversity on the panel. So we have the youths like Robbie <laughs> setting us straight on Harry Potter. But today's actual yeah. youths, uh, I think, have contempt for like our like. I think my understanding is Gen Z has contempt for how much millennials like love Harry Potter and, and, and like in everything oh. to Harry Potter or so. This is my understanding. Harry Potter's awesome. I, <laughs> right? I, I no, I know. Potter. Right? Yeah. 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 I was oh, I was a little boy. too old for Harry Potter, but I was actually a camp counselor for kids, probably kids your age. You know, when you yeah. were and you know, like I, I was a camp counselor when I was 21 or 22 for like 12, 13, 14 year olds. And it was so funny because it was all these boys and they were all kind of juvenile. You know, they, they were their parents sent them there because they didn't want them to get into trouble during the summer. And they would beg me when the, it was during the fourth Harry Potter book. 
they would beg me, these like teenage, preteens and teenage boys, begging me to take them to the library and to the bookstore mm-hmm. to get Aww. the latest Harry Potter book. And I was like, what in the world me. is this? <laughs> and then they would get these books and these all these boys would just sit down and they'd read the book all week long. Yep. They just wanted to sit down and read the book. So that's when I got into it because I was like, what are these kids obsessed with? That was literally and, me. When the fourth yeah. book came out, yeah, I locked myself in my bedroom and I didn't leave for like 24 hours in order to finish it. Yeah. When the fourth but book I came got out, into I went it, to college and, and I never thought about it again. <laughs> Oh, they were so good, though, and I love them. Gen Z is absolutely rolling their eyes, and, you know, I'm rolling my eyes right back because they're great books. They are great. I've read them, like, three times all now, and I watch the movies. Whenever they're on TV, I can't help myself but to stop and watch the movies. (laughs) They're so good. Well, anyway, we... we, It's not in it. This is clear. So I understand the parallel, the Dolores Umbridge-type person. Um, Seems just like this woman, right? Doesn't she have, like, a Dolores Umbridge, like, ooh, I'm going to sing you a song. Oh, sweet on the outside, but secretly sinister. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. With, with, with the whole the pink and the love of cats, the yeah cat <laughs> scary cat lady type vibes. She's just um, like a young Dolores Umbridge. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh gosh, you guys. <laughs> okay. It's a generational thing, but you, okay, you don't. Yeah, you don't. I'm okay. older than, I'm it, older it than skips, both of you though, so it's, it's, it's not it's that generation. It's to me. That's all. Maybe it's just a, a Brianna thing. But I'm glad we I'm Brianna, glad we cleared that you? misinformation. <laughs> who hurt you? <laughs> I am I'm a, I'm someone who was too invested in Roald Dahl to ever make the shift over oh. to J.K. Rowling. But that's for that's for another uh, segment panel, maybe maybe an upcoming radar. Speaking of radars, I look forward to hearing your radar next, Kim. Kim, what's on your radar today? Well, there's once again another attack on the free press in America. Over the past few days, PayPal has banned several left-wing independent news organizations and left-wing journalists from using their services. No real explanation as to why they've been banned. They just randomly received a notice. And on top of this, PayPal informed them that if they have any money in their accounts, it'll be held for 180 days for review, after which the company will let them know how they can possibly access their money if they let them have it at all. Again, they weren't given any real explanation as to why they've suddenly been banned from conducting business through PayPal. They all received this fairly generic notice that says... We recently noticed an issue with your account. Because of this issue, your account has been permanently limited. We understand this may be frustrating and inconvenient, but you'll still be able to see your transaction history for a limited time. You can get more details about your account limitation in our Resolution Center. For more information, contact us and we'll do our best to help. You'll be able to withdraw money from your account within 180 days. We'll email you when it's available. We just want to make sure you have money in your account to cover any payment reversals. So far, the organizations and individuals we're aware of being banned include Mint Press News, Consortium News, Geopolitics and Empire, as well as Caleb Maupin. So why were they banned? Well, I think the first question we need to ask is, why should someone or an organization be banned? Perhaps in a logical world, someone would get themselves booted if they engage in disruptive or illegal behavior. For example, if you were collecting funds to commit a crime like build a bomb or if you were selling illegal drugs, it would make sense why a money collection service like PayPal would perhaps cut you off. But none of these news organizations and journalists are doing anything illegal. They aren't hate groups associated with any white supremacists calling for violence against anyone, for example. Actually, None of them call for violence at all. In fact, they're all decidedly anti-war. We can't know for sure because PayPal isn't saying. But the one thing all of these news entities have in common is they all speak out against supplying endless weapons to Ukraine so the U.S. can fight a proxy war with Russia. 
because they question the current neoliberal, neoconservative tradition of keeping America in endless conflict, they're labeled Russian disinformation outlets, despite the fact they're all Americans. Mint Press News is a left-wing news organization that covers foreign affairs, environmental issues, economics, and politics from an anti-imperialist perspective. They often disagree with mainstream news on what's going on with the various wars and conflicts the West finds themselves either in or supporting. They challenge a lot of the accepted claims and because of it are labeled conspiracy theorists or pro-Assad or Kremlin propagandists. In fact, this description of Mint Press News can also be applied to consortium news and geopolitics and empire, as well as Caleb Maupin. They're dissidents. They challenge the narratives and often disagree with the established viewpoint. They get smeared and labeled, and now they apparently even get banned from being able to use PayPal to conduct business. Now, all of these organizations are run by American citizens. Caleb Maupin does work for RT International, but he's an American journalist, no different from any other American journalist working for foreign outlets like BBC, Al Jazeera, or Deutsche Welle. You could, of course, be skeptical that perhaps his employer is requiring him to say certain things or self-censor certain opinions in order to stay consistent with the company line. I think it's fair enough to wonder and question motives when there's connections like these. But I think it's also fair to wonder how free our press or even our country is when American citizens are labeled as Russian-affiliated state media and banned from using PayPal. In fact, many of us Americans work for foreign corporations. Should it become the norm to be shunned as an individual because of the actions of the parent company of the corporation you work for? Even if you disagree with the, apparent, with the opinions of the Americans who share their views in these outlets, are their views so offensive they must be silenced? Now, of course, PayPal isn't banning anyone from sharing their views, but obviously if these news outlets can't conduct business and they're forced to downsize or even shut down entirely, who's gonna hear their views? And this is the point. The point is to limit their reach and influence by cutting off their funds. And it isn't even about them. It's actually about you and me. The danger is people like you and I might hear these different viewpoints and actually agree with them. The powers that be have decided they don't want us to decide for ourselves what we think is actually going on. They want to be able to tell us, have us hear nothing but that one state-sanctioned narrative and be offered no alternatives to think otherwise. The biggest question is, why would PayPal decide to ban these individuals and outlets? What about these news entities was threatening to PayPal's business model as a private company that they had to cut them off? Or are there other forces, perhaps government pressures, that are leaning on private companies like PayPal to do what they can to stop the spread of what the government deems to be misinformation? And that, I think, is the real big implication of this. I mean, this is obviously for these companies, these these news organizations to suddenly be cut off from their funding, from their ability to gather funding, I should say, from individuals and from donors of some kind. Uh, I mean, that is obviously big news. It's an attack on free press, especially these are Americans. Uh, But on top of that, I think we need to be asking some questions as to why PayPal is doing this. This, to me, is once again another showcasing of a an attack on the First Amendment, and that is because the government, I believe, is pressuring these companies to do this type of censoring, to say, we gotta go after all this misinformation. It makes me wonder, is this part of the Ministry of Truth? Was this one of their first actions? Was to call up PayPal and say, you need to stop allowing uh, certain organizations and individuals to collect funds through your organization? Uh, you know, yeah. that, that's, I think, the big question. Yeah, no, right. And, and we've, we've reached out to, we should say, we've reached out to, to PayPal to see if we can get any clarity about it. But we know that the government is subtly, sometimes not so subtly, pushing 
private companies to do more about what it describes as misinformation, although some of that misinformation ends up being accurate information or at least debatable information about the pandemic, about what Russia is doing, those kinds of things. Yeah, these so these companies, it looks to me like they they clearly feel, you know, maybe some of them are making bad calls of their own volition, uh, but they feel like they could be, you know, they could be hauled before Congress or they're going to be held responsible for what the people who use their platforms or use their services are being done. The government will hold them responsible for that. And they're they're scared. And they're not they're not they're certainly not being a lot of them very courageous about it. But, you, you know, you have to understand when when God. Forces in the government and in the media, right, are screaming at them that they're they're responsible for you know whatever Russia is doing, uh, and they're they're afraid. Kim, do you think that there is a difference in terms of proportionality when you look at the, the tension that this story is getting versus the attention that some of the stories about you know arguably conservative um, outlets or, or conservative people? Uh, being banned have gotten. I'm thinking yeah. of the, the the bannings that happened after one six and uh, the accounts that were seen parlor, et cetera, as supporting that effort. Have you seen t- attention around this story that's commensurate with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're you bring up a really great point. Uh, it's exactly right. A right wing outlets that get banned or censored in some way or have this sort of limitation on them get a lot of press. There's a lot of people that come to their defense, a lot of big names. You know, you'll see like Tucker Carlson on Fox News, who has the, the largest, you know, most popular cable news program talking about it. When left wing outlets get censored, and we saw this also last February. So this was right after January 6th. February YouTube actually, I believe it was February 3rd, 2nd or 3rd of 2021, they went and did this kind of uh, slaughter of left-wing news, independent news on their platform Mm -hmm. and and got rid of a ton of them, like a couple of dozen, and they were all mostly left-wing. And that didn't get really any attention. Uh, Right, Ford Fisher. There was a lot of different organizations and individuals. Just an independent um, uh, chronicler of records, uh, things at protests, and just, you know, very on-the-ground reporting. And he's been treated horribly by, I think, yeah. multiple platforms. Well, and even like Jamal Thomas, who does mm-hmm. this, the progressive soapbox, he got, rem- he got uh, you know, demonetized from YouTube. Just really, but nobody really talks about this very much, which is why I found it really important to cover this today. But I do think there is that, there is that discrepancy. But I think the reason is because, unfortunately, in today's landscape, it wasn't always the case for a long time, right-wing conservatives were very much the ones censoring and hindering, you know, people from being out there in the public and whatnot from different lifestyles and different opinions. But these days, it does seem to be coming from the left. Mm -hmm. More of the left is calling for the censorship, calling for the clamping down on misinformation and disinformation. So when they see certain left-wing anti-war outlets, uh, what they consider spewing Kremlin talking points, which are actually in Europe, it's the left-wing of all the political parties that are saying, we don't want these weapons to be sent to Ukraine. We wanna see negotiations happen. When you actually study European politics, it's all coming from the left. Here in the United States, for whatever reason, it's considered a right-wing talking point mm. to be to be anti-war, to be saying, yeah. we need to be negotiating this. So I think, unfortunately, the left is more supportive of this. They're almost calling for it. So they're saying, well, you get what you deserve because you guys have all moved to the right anyway. You guys are a bunch of Kremlin propagandists now. I, I wonder if we're moving toward or what we're going to see is, is some kind of environment where you have certain companies or platforms or services that are the regime ones or the, the censorship ones, the ones that 
at the very least, they should be upfront about it, right? If you use our service, we might decide we don't like you, and we, you know, we're highly monitoring for this kinds of thing, and so that's how we operate. Versus ones that that say no, we were just a service, and we don't really get into unless you know unless you're literally organizing violence or something or doing something illegal. We're not we're going to police that kind of thing. Maybe that ends up being the the right wing or the the team red or the Republican one, and the other one is the the team blue one, and it's we're going to have to have that for like literally everything at some point, which I, which would not be a great outcome, but might just be where we're headed. Well, what's interesting or is that- Or Elon Musk yeah. buys more platforms. <laughs> right, the, right, the Elon Musk platform <laughs> and the, uh, yeah, and the, uh, the other one. Um, yeah. Well, what's interesting is that so many of the platforms that exist now, um, like Substack and Substack, Patreon, right. are initially had that kind of veneer to them, right? The idea, the, the whole point of them was they were a refuge from folks who had felt like they'd been chased out of other media. And to some extent, their integrity, the reason that they're still valued today is because they so far right. haven't bent the knee to this kind of an impulse. It kind of feels like those bit, the Bitcoin companies that, you know, if they were to start, you know, releasing information, that it would kind of defeat the whole purpose of the blockchain and all the privacy and the Bitcoin pa- Patreons stuff. held it. I don't have very much Patreon. experience at all with Patreon. They've no, been they, pretty good. No, they've, they've actually great. done... I don't. Yeah, Patreon for sure has gone and, and done a ton of of censoring, and that's actually why guys like Dave Rubin uh, went and started Locals was because right. Patreon was actually deplatforming right, and right. and doing the same sort of thing that PayPal mm-hmm. is now doing. PayPal is kind of new to doing this. They they have been doing this. This is not the first time they've done it. Um, but you know, we've seen GoFundMe do it to the truckers. You know, to to various protests. Yeah. We're now seeing PayPal do it. Patreon definitely was doing it. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a matter of time before Substack starts to say, well, you know, maybe your particular, uh, you know, writings cannot be viewed because they're dangerous. And so we have to take them off the platform. Oh, they would take a huge blow to their, you might be right, but they would take a huge blow to their credibility, I think, yeah. if they did that. Uh, thank you, Kim. We'll have more Rising right after this. President Biden has just released a statement responding to the news that that draft Supreme Court opinion of Alito on the getting rid of, uh, that suggests Roe Casey abortion precedent would be struck down by a conservative majority uh, if there are other people supporting it. So this is what President Biden had to say about it. We do not know whether this draft is genuine or whether it reflects the final decision of the court. With that critical caveat, I want to be clear on three points. First, my administration argued strongly before the court in defense of Roe v. Wade. We said that Roe is based on a long line of precedent, recognizing the 14th Amendment. I believe that a woman's right to choose is fundamental. Roe has been the law of land for almost 50 years. And he says that if the court does overturn Roe, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose. You can read the full uh, full statement on the screen. Uh, so nothing really uh, surprising there. I, I mean, I, if anything, it shows that there are a lot of voters who care about protecting uh, Roe, Casey, in some way, shape, or form. So I, I think Democrats probably see this as an opportunity to, uh, to, to do political advocacy, to maybe actually maybe even regain some of the considerable momentum they've lost. Uh, but of course, abor- you know, getting rid of abortion or limiting abortion or returning it to the states is something uh, conservative activists have wanted for decades and decades and decades. So this is, it energizes them too. Yeah, well, the tone of this, something that I think the left has been objecting to since this leak 
came to our attention yesterday evening and which is a tone that is reflected in Biden's statement in the last paragraph is that this seems like an argument to, for, for the Democratic establishment to wag their fingers at voters and say, vote harder. Their response to this is to vote harder. In the last paragraph of the statement, he says, uh, it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. At the federal level, we will need more pro-choice senators and pro-choice majority in the House to adopt legislation that codifies Roe, and I will work to pass and sign this law. Well, people on the left, liberals, progressives, have been arguing for the duration of Joe Biden's candidacy, uh, presidency, rather, that he should get rid of the filibuster and enshrine Roe into law, that this was a long time coming. We've seen this uh, Republican majority coming down the pike for quite some time. And Democrats, to your point, Robbie, do persistently, repeatedly run on the fear mongering of what will happen to the Supreme Court if Democrats don't get in office. And it feels as though they have not, uh, there has been a disconnect between the urgency with which they talk about how important the right to choose is and their willingness to do anything about it, perhaps because they know it is a cudgel to drive people to the polls. So while some folks obviously hopped on the Internet and immediately started blaming, you know, Susan Sarandon and Jill Stein voters for it. Others have pointed out that Nancy Pelosi and establishment Democrats have been courting anti-choice people to the party, saying that it was OK to be an anti-choice Democrat, not choosing to use the supermajority that Obama had to enshrine Roe into law at that point, and that all of those decisions by the Democratic establishment have led to this point, making the, but, the claim that we just need to vote harder now following that year. Opening the floodgates by doing the procedural tweaks is not a long-term solution because that Republicans are about to, are going to retake every level of power and just undo them or do, or do them harder in the other way. And? Well, right. isn't, that, isn't that the whole point of democracy, that you do get swings yeah. back and forth, that you vote for people to enact no, sure, a of laws? Fine. Absolutely and they fine. Do so. It's just not going to, it's not like, well, we can do that and then it's fixed forever. It's well, look, nothing's fixed forever. I do think yeah. that there is an extent to which there is inertia and that people look, look, the reality is that the, the overall majority of Americans support the right to choose to some extent. Now, obviously, those numbers change a little bit when you talk about what the, the demarcation line is. But the overwhelming mm -hmm. majority actually want there to be some right to choose, which this opinion, by the way, right. if it is, in fact, reflective of what's going to come down the pike. There are no exceptions for the safety of the mother or some of these other uh, rape, incest, those kinds of things, which even the most ardent conservatives, most of most of them um, support. Well, I mean, the, if those overwhelming yeah. majorities live in California and New York and some other places, they're still going to have uh, abortion right. and you know, whatever. But the 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 states where a majority of voters do want abortion. I mean, that that's where I, I struggle with this, because this is an area where it's a little scrambled in who's advocating for democracy and who's not. But, you know, what's your take, Kim? Well, I, you know, to to Biden saying, well, we just got to, and Bree, you saying vote harder, get more Democrats in office. We've got to get all these pro-choice people in. You know, that we've had unified governments. Uh, we're, we're in a technically a unified government right now under Democratic control. They still have not codified Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey, whichever one they want to. They're not they're, the woman's, a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to have medical autonomy over her body. They have not codified this. They've, there's been a unified government under Bill Clinton. There's been a unified government under Barack Obama. There's a unified government under Joe Biden. Where is the codification of this? Right. When is it? Ha so what makes us think that suddenly if, they, if we get more Democrats in, we're gonna definitely, I mean, I could kind of understand right now saying, well, it's because it's, it's a little bit more split. You know, the Senate is 50-50. So we got to do more. But are they really going to actually do anything with it if they were? The problem is, is that a lot of Democrats are pro-life. And this is something that on the left, they're not willing to actually talk about. Same thing on the right. The right doesn't, 
seem to want to talk about the fact that there's a lot of pro-choice people on the Republican side of the aisle. Well, uh, it, it is not exactly a left-right split on this, as it, so yeah. it's harder to codify. Well, and Kim, I, I think you've made this point before. It's a great one that, you know what, the Democrats have totally sold out the idea that you know, private medical decisions belong to people and their doctors. They have absolutely discredited the idea that that's a important virtue to them. We're now making medical decisions at the collective level, at the federal bureaucracy level. Uh, it's it's it, so maybe it maybe it doesn't matter, but. From a principled standpoint, I, I wonder if that has any effect. Well, other members of the left are pointing out that there has been support for, to your point, Kim, these anti-abortion Democrats in Congress. Uh, Henry Kohler uh, in Texas has been running against uh, Jessica Cincinnati. And of course, the establishment Democrat has secured all kinds of uh, endorsements from the party, the same people who are now wringing their hands and saying, oh my God, you got to vote harder for Democrats to get into office. Well, if you've got Democrats like these, who needs enemies? Right. And why isn't there support for someone who is a firmly pro-choice candidate like uh, Jessica Cisneros and support of the Democratic Party behind the people who actually support what are supposed to be bedrock principles of the Democratic Party itself? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, uh, but at the end of the day, I do think that this will show us uh, if this opinion ends up being the opinion that's put out there. I have a hard time believing that this is the actual draft of what's finally going to be out there. But, hey, you know, I mean. We've been shocked before, I suppose. Right. Um, but if that's the case, then people will need to start paying way more attention to their local elections. That And that is where it will drive a lot of attention. It's not just about getting people at the federal level. People are going to have to pay attention to who they elect on a local level because that person is going to decide when that line is of when a woman still has the right to choose. Is it will she be protected for rape and incest or if her life is in danger um, my real big fear about this, in order to even re to overturn this again uh, in the Supreme Court to for it to go up to that level, I worry somebody has to lose their life, and this has to then get challenged in court, where people say, "My sister, my daughter lost her life because the doctors would not give her an mm -hmm. abortion, and the ba you know, and, and there was complications, there was medical complications, and the doctors have been warning about this, and and she couldn't access one, and you know, the people are going to have to get to that point." in order to even bring this back up to the Supreme Court. That's also another, you know, in order to get this overturned, you have to have somebody suing somebody. And yeah, yeah I think it's for? important for, I'm glad you brought it back to the reality of the, the world life implications of this, Kim. One, one fun, not so fun fact that I learned recently um, about why the, um, how the, 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 the trimester system was decided in Roe originally was that they were going to do an earlier date. But because there's no universal health care in America, there was this concern that it would take women longer than that to access health care to actually secure an abortion. And for that reason, they extended the timeline. It was a feature of us having a broken health care system in the first instance that gave justices who didn't necessarily have an ideological commitment to giving a time, women more time to secure an abortion extended it, knowing that it's so difficult for women to find resources. And even if it, if it does come to look down to localities and individual states, that's not going to be a solution for the majority of people who are affected, who are low income folks, disproportionately black and brown, who also disproportionately live in red states. And if you look at the maps of where we're going to lose the right to choose in the country, in this country, it's going to be a lot of older, more affluent, I'm sorry, white leadership that is making these kinds of rules that are not going to affect them. They're going to be able to fly 
their mistresses to Connecticut and get all the abortions yeah. they want. And it's going to be these low income populations that are really going to suffer. Yeah, we should we should emphasize, you know, we really this is an unusual occurrence. We really don't know what the outcome of the court case is going to be. And, you know, between now and when it comes out, even if it even if this is representative of what of the majority decision, Kavanaugh, someone, probably Kavanaugh, could change his mind based on this, based on the reaction. He could change his mind just because he gets second thoughts. Right, the, right, the, uh, the, uh, the John Roberts changed his mind about the, the health care decision from years and years right. ago, right? Some, kind of at the last minute, is what we understand that the, the, the other justice, Scalia and other justices were surprised at the last minute that the decision was written as if he was on board with it. So, this, so even if it's exactly what it looks like, might not be the outcome. So we'll, right. you know, we'll, we'll have to see, but uh, it was uh, interesting news. <laughs> All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Representative Chantel Brown and challenger and former state senator Nina Turner will once again face off today in a Cleveland area race in Ohio's primary election for Ohio's House seat in the 11th District. Brown beat Turner in a special primary race last summer, but Turner is challenging her again. Former Progressive Caucus co-chair Mark Pocan said that when the caucus, quote, took the vote, no one voted not to endorse Chantel. The good news is we have two great progressives running. We like these options. This comes after President Joe Biden endorsed Brown's re-election bid last Friday. He said in a statement that Brown has been, quote, an ardent advocate for the people of Ohio and a true partner in Congress. Chantel is committed to building a better America. Brianna, I see you, I see you flinching. Explain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this was a big deal on the left because no one knew who Chantel Brown was before last summer. She has never been an advocate for any progressive policy. She did, was not an advocate for uh, Medicare for all. She spent the whole campaign last summer trying to appropriate Nina Turner's progressive positions and accuse Nina Turner of not being progressive because she voted against the Democratic platform because it was insufficiently progressive. She only recently became a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus a few months ago, um, seemingly only as a cover for the endorsement process now. And the idea that Mark Pocan has now revealed that it wasn't even a nail biter, there wasn't even any dissension in the ranks when the CPC voted to endorse her over you know, Bernie Sanders 2020 co-chair Nina Turner and once someone who's considered to be one of the most um, high profile progressives on the left. It's it's a real betrayal. It just really puts another level on the betrayal of the endorsement in the first place. I think it also really just goes to show how the establishment was just never really going to ever get behind Bernie Sanders. I know this is about Nina, but it's she's kind of viewed as an extension of Bernie in a lot of ways. And I, I really loved Nina and really thought that, wow, you know, this really could be another rising politician and uh, kind of take the mantle from Bernie Sanders as he's gotten older and maybe he's not going to run again. Really had high hopes for Nina. But it seems like the establishment just is once again burying uh, that real progressive left wing, like what I would consider true progressive left wing part of the party. I mean, you covered this when there was the special election. What are the chances now for Nina today? Well, my understanding is that there are a lot of things that have happened that benefit Senator Turner with respect to the newly drawn district lines, a part of town that did not go for her, which was more affluent and more white, is no longer in her district. And a part of the of Cleveland that went very heavily for Bernie Sanders is now a part of her district. There is some 
evidence that she is doing better uh, because there was some stuff with early voting that didn't work out for her in the last time around where the early voting ballots went out at the same time as a lot of um, uh, anti-Senator Turner pamphlets. They were well-timed and people filled those out and sent their ballots in before the subsequent advertising on TV that pushed back against Chantel Brown went out. And so Nina Turner lost in part and, or largely because of the early ballot the same day uh, ballots went for Senator Turner. So you could get a different outcome. And again, the race is today, nothing's over yet. But what's really striking about this is that when it came out that the CPC had endorsed Chantel Brown, there was some thought that maybe individuals who had endorsed Senator Turner last time or Cori Bush, who has been seen on the campaign trail, you know, with uh, uh, Nita Turner and being supportive of Nita Turner, would separately come out and endorse. And that maybe even though the CPC endorsed, there was dissension in the ranks. What, what Mark Pocan is saying in that clip is that there was a unanimous agreement within the CPC to support uh, Chantel Brown. That is, that is, it's one thing to expect some people who have shown less integrity within the CPC to go for Chantel Brown. We all understand the CPC is not really a progressive organization. It's a weird allotment of people that is a, huge, a large, like 100-person caucus, which really undermines the idea that there's any kind of organizing ideological principle. The fact that Chantel Brown is in it belies the idea that there's any real organizing ideological principle, but this is another level. Yeah, Representative Pramila Jayapal defended the CPS's endorsement of Brown over Nina Turner, but she said she did understand the frustration and that the CPC might change their endorsement standards not to support members taking giant PAC money, whether it's from crypto billionaires or from the Democratic majority for Israel. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has now endorsed Turner in the rematch. AOC supported Senator Turner in her previous matchup as well. This endorsement came in last night. In the 11th hour, the day before the election, and some people are saying better late than never. Some people are saying if you were planning to do this, why on earth would you would do you it now except minute. for that you're trying to make up for all the backlash the CPC has received because of its endorsement of Brown? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. She, yeah. Well, she's, could it be related to all the heat she's getting over the, the Amazon thing, the labor stuff? She's sort of starting to feel vulnerable on or, or disliked or upset the progressives are yeah this maybe. is almost like the progressive token like oh okay I'm, I'm still a progressive here let me endorse nana turner i i don't know but it seems like the the the, the left liberals everybody is really struggling to gain any credibility with the base who have been largely you know, dismissed and undermined. A lot of people were frustrated that it seemed immediately the Democratic Party is fundraising off of this uh, leaked uh, opinion that seems to be overturning Roe and Casey. The idea that the Democratic Party is nothing more than a fundraising mechanism that pokes its head up periodically to say, you know, oh, something bad happened, give us money, without ever demonstrating an ability to show a return on that investment. And so here you have AOC, who remember, was someone who made a big fuss when Ro Khanna did not endorse her in her race against Joe Crowley because she was mm -hmm. obviously the more progressive candidate. And Ro Khanna at the time, after a hard night on Twitter going back and forth with some people, ultimately decided to co-endorse both of those candidates. Now we have AOC kind of <laughs> in a position then to either say, you know, How interesting. <laughs> you're an enormous hypocrite, basically, if you don't come out and endorse Nina Turner. And I think that might have been, have been what ultimately got her to do this in the 11th hour. But it almost, from my perspective, feels more disrespectful than, than staying out of it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I just want to mention is I cannot believe that it isn't just an absolute requirement that in order to be endorsed by the Progressive Caucus, you're not taking big money. That should be the first thing. 
right? Like you cannot Absolutely. be taking big money if you want this endorsement. How is that not standard? Absolutely. Excellent question. And I think that's that's why they got these people on the fence. That's why Giant Paul is on the fence in that quote saying, well, I guess, you know, that's a, that's a solid point. I guess we should consider whether you're taking big corporate oh money. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of feels. A lot of feels going on. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll discuss the Camp Lejeune Justice Act and hear from a man born at the base who says his exposure to toxic chemicals as a child led to cancer. And we'll, of course, continue to follow the developments out of the Supreme Court. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss one of our episodes. And also be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can get us there, download it, uh, and listen to us on the go. Thank you guys so much for watching. We will see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Bye.